Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. In Revelation chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there and the title of today's message is Knowing Where the Battle is Occurring. As you notice on the prophecy updates, there's a lot of focus in on the Middle East and what's going on in Israel, and that's because the Bible is predicting that that is the hot spot, that Israel is the concern of prophecy for the future, and so that's why there's a lot of emphasis there, and that is where the battle is occurring, and we'll talk about some other places as well. If any of you have ever studied World War II, it recently, I guess a few years ago, came out that we had a section of our army in Europe that was called a ghost army. Jack Massey, he's 88 years old. There was an article about him. He was 19 at the time. He was sent over to Europe, and him and and thousands of people in the Allied forces were to use decoys to prevent the Nazis from knowing where our troops were. And they would have blow-up tanks and blow-up weaponry and, I mean, just inflatable things and have just simply a ghost army that the Germans would see and think we were here when we were really in another location with our troops. And so there were thousands of people dedicated to this that did not only the blow-up and the inflatables, but they did sounds and different things like that to make the German army think our armies were in a certain location. So anyway, it was called the World War II Ghost Army, and there was a lot of people involved in that. Well, in a lot of ways, what's happening right now in the world is Satan is kind of doing a similar tactic to the church and to the culture. He's making people think that the war is over here when it's really happening over here. And so a lot of Christians, believe it or not, are fighting the wrong battles. They're on the wrong battlefield in their lives, thinking that the fight's happening here when the fight is completely on the other side. And why this is important to study this particular passage in the book of Revelation, it tells you and I where the fight is occurring. Because as you know, the Apostle Paul said, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We're fighting a spiritual battle that's unseen, in the unseen realm. And these forces that we're fighting are vicious. If we didn't have the seal of God, they would kill us. They hate us so bad because they hate God. And so the key in Christianity is to know where the battle is being fought, And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see the locations of where Satan fights his battle. He doesn't want you to think that the battle is occurring here. He wants you to think it's occurring elsewhere. So he'll do a ghost army, so to speak, to you and I if we're not careful. And I'm going to tell you this right now at the beginning. A lot of Christians are out to lunch on this stuff. They are completely out of reality of knowing where the battle is. They've been duped. And I'll show you how they've been duped later on in the sermon. Let me give you the setting So before we dig in. The setting here in Revelation 12 is a parenthesis. It's a break from the, the sequence of events happening in, in the book of Revelation. And what John is trying to do through the Holy Spirit inspiring him is saying, while these events are happening, 
Let me tell you a bigger drama that's going on at the same time concurrently with these judgments being poured out. And that's what we're going to see here. It's going to summarize where the battle is. Okay? So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 12. We're going to break this whole section of chapter 12 into several sermons because it's a very in-depth kind of text. We need to go about it pretty slow. Let's start with verse 1, and then we'll find out where this battle is. It says in the text, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. Anytime you see that, you'll see it through the book of Revelation. A sign means it's a symbol that points to an ultimate reality. A symbol that points to an ultimate reality. Okay, so then what is, what is this sign that appears in heaven? A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, as you recall, there was a fever pitch craziness that happened on YouTube about people misinterpreting this passage and thought it was a constellation that appears in the stars. And in last September, people started date-setting and doing a lot of stupid things, which a lot of false teachers were capitalizing on, thinking, well, this sign has now been given, and it's, been, it's in the heavenly planetary uh, atmosphere and the sun and the moon and Virgo and yada, 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 and it just went stupid. And see, this is the problem that you and I are having. You and I who take prophecy in a very conservative way, we're not tinfoil hat people, we're not putting dates down, we get lumped in with the tinfoil hat brigades. We get lumped in with the date setters because of what they do. They take texts out of context, they set dates, and they say stupid things. You're just going to have to take your lumps because it's a growing phenomenon and they're going to call you names as well for believing in prophecy. Nonetheless, let's unpack this. What really is it talking about? There are three understandings of this that are all legitimate because the sign has multiple applications. And let me go through them one by one with you on the multiple applications. The first application we want to see is it's a woman. It's a woman clothed with the sun and the moon on her feet and a head of garland around her 12 stars. She is a woman... And that is a reference then, if you know your Old Testament, to an entity that was called the wife of Yahweh. There are several metaphors of women in the Old Testament. The great harlot you'll see in, in the New Testament, and the, the woman in the basket, wickedness in Zechariah 5, and even the Jezebel spirit in the New Testament, and Jezebel herself. There's wicked women, but there's one woman that's good in the Old Testament, and she is called the wife of Yahweh. So as you'll see as we flush out the rest of the text, this reference to this woman is the wife of Yahweh. Notice she's not a bride. The church is a bride that's not wed yet. The corporate entity of the bride has not been with her groom. We will do that after the rapture. So... In the Old Testament, the woman here, and you're going to see that she's pregnant, is the wife of Yahweh, okay? That then tells us what the reference is. It is a reference to the nation of Israel, okay? So that's the first understanding of the woman. The second understanding is to solidify that it is Israel. 
is notice that she's clothed with the sun, the moon, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Well, that's really simple. Let me show you a picture. You might recall this. Joseph had dreams. He had specific dreams about his family, and then he had a dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars. He also had the sheaves that bowed down to him. And he would tell his family his dreams, and they got really mad at him for telling that because they said, are we going to worship you? And that ultimately happened in his own life as they came to him for help from the famine, and he revealed himself to them. But nonetheless, he had another dream, the sun and the moon and the stars. So this is not an astrological prediction from the book of Revelation. John is hearkening back to Genesis 37. He assumes when you read his text that it triggers in your mind, oh, that's Joseph's dream, sun, moon, stars, gotcha. And what was Joseph dreaming about? He was dreaming about Israel. That's what it is. Okay, then define this for me, Brandon. The sun in Joseph's dream represented Jacob, okay? And Jacob's name got changed from Jacob to what? Israel. It's a reference to Israel. Also notice that the moon is involved. That is a reference to Rachel. Rachel is the mother of Israel, as she is called. And you'll see this in several texts in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, especially in the death of the babies in Bethlehem. It will quote Rachel weeping for her children. So Rachel became the symbol of Israel's national motherhood. So the moon is a reference to Rachel, the mother of Israel. Okay? And then what about the 12 stars? Well, in Joseph's dream, he dreams of 11 and then counting himself. He's the other star. Simple. That's the 12 tribes of Israel represented by stars. The stars are probably a reference to angels that are assigned to the 12 tribes. But as you can see, everything is pointing to Israel. This is not like the Catholic Church says, this is Mary. You know, have you ever seen those pictures of Mary? You can go downtown and you have statues of Mary with 12 stars around her head because they're misinterpreting this passage. You think it's Mary. It's not. It's a reference to Israel. End of story. You can't get anything other than that. If you do, you're going out of the context and you don't know the Old Testament. And unfortunately, too many people simply ignore the Old Testament. Okay, a third understanding and a third application. So follow me with this. Now, if you go to the woman, notice that the woman is clothed with the sun, and at her feet is the moon, okay? So there's multiple typologies here that you have to understand that's going on, okay? The reference to the sun has to do with righteousness, that she's clothed with the sun, which is a direct reference to righteousness. Well, what do you mean? Well, Messiah said this in Matthew 13, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom. So anytime she's clothed with the sun or shining, even Daniel chapter 12 talks about the believers or even the saved Israelites being like the stars or being like the firmament, that they they shine. So the idea of a reference to she's clothed with the sun is that she shines. Okay, what is that a reference to? Jesus said it's a reference to righteousness. So it shows you it's dealing with a certain element of Israel that is righteous. 
There's a certain element of Israel that's unrighteous because they're not saved. Hence, the reference to her being clothed with righteousness is a reference to the remnant Israel. So you see how it drills down to get more specific? It's just not just the Israel. It's the remnant of Israel. Well, then explain the moon. Well, in the third understanding of this, in that the moon is at her feet, when you understand the sun and the moon in its typology, the moon is a counterfeit light. Does that make sense? The sun is the real source of light. And then when it hits the moon, the moon is just simply reflecting the sun's light, right? It's a counterfeit light. It gives light off, but it's not the real sun. Oh, then let's move it to righteousness. If the sun, the light, represents real righteousness applied to the remnant of Israel, then a counterfeit righteousness is being trodden down under her feet, which represents that they have stopped trying to earn salvation a counterfeit righteousness by works righteousness, which was what the Jews had a problem with and what Paul tried to hammer out in Romans, that you cannot earn salvation by works righteousness. So works righteousness are symbolized by the moon, the counterfeit light, being trampled underground. It's no account because they have received the true righteousness that comes from faith in the Messiah. I know that seems like a lot, but that's what's going on here. If anyone takes it out of that and says, well, the sign Virgo going into this, it's it's, it's baloney. It's crazy. Or if they say it's the Virgin Mary, that's crazy talk. That's not what the text is saying. You have to know Old Testament patterns to know what he's talking about. And because John just simply assumes that you do. He assumes that you know the Old Testament. Okay, that being the case, then we definitely then can say this. It is Israel. Okay? The first clue then of knowing where the battle is in God's program is to understand Israel. You have to understand this nation. Okay, verse 2. Let's jump back to there. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Let's go back to the picture of the lady. So this picture of Israel with the sun and the moon, she's clothed with writing, but she's about to have a baby. The emphasis before we get to the baby is the labor that she's under. She has historically been in labor. She's going to be in labor at the first coming. She's going to be in labor at the second coming. Her whole existence has been in labor. Okay, what is this trying to say? It's trying to say that her labor pains are associated to the seed promise given to Israel that the Messiah would come from her. Also, that not just that the Messiah would come from her, but the second coming of Messiah is predicated on her, on her acceptance of Messiah. Everything is foundational to understand the first and second coming of Messiah if you understand Israel. If you understand the Jews, you have to understand this theologically to understand what's going on. So she's in labor. The labor then is associated to the satanic attack that she has been getting ever since Satan has heard that the Messiah is going to come from her 
and that the Messiah is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem over Israel during the Messianic age. He has been on a terror ever since he's heard that pronouncement to destroy every Jew on the planet. And if I recount the history in the Old Testament, you're very familiar with this, this labor, this persecution. It first started with the 70 who were with Jacob, and remember, they sold Joseph in the prison. The family nearly died because of a famine. If it wasn't for Joseph, all 70, that was the core group of Israel, would have been wiped out by a famine. But Joseph saved them, did he not? Then he provides a place for them to spread out and grow in Goshen. And then a pharaoh came that didn't know him. He was a typology of the Antichrist. And he starts wiping out all the male children because Satan knows the Messiah is coming from them. And so Pharaoh tries to wipe them out. Then they get into the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites, with Nephilim on top of this, hybrids, are fighting Joshua in the land, fighting them constantly trying to wipe them out. Then the Philistines, once the Canaanites are dealt with, the Philistines move in and threaten the Israelites. It's constant persecution. And then when it got narrowed down that said, the Messiah is going to come from the line of David, the line of Jesse, then Satan went after the Davidic line. David was threatened with his life by Saul numerous times. They tried to kill him. But Satan was unsuccessful, and he was using Saul. Saul was demon-oppressed to kill David, by the way. He kept throwing javelins at the guy. You remember that? Tried to wipe him out. And the whole Davidic line then was attacked. Hezekiah was attacked. Then the Assyrians take the ten tribes and deport them. The Babylonians come in and take the other two remaining tribes of Benjamin and Judah and try to wipe them out. Then in Persia, Haman, a typology of the Antichrist, just tries to destroy every living Jew in Persia. If you remember that, and Esther saves them. Took one person to save the entire nation. Remember that? Antiochus Epiphanes comes in under Greek control. It's now the times of the Gentiles. The Babylonians have controlled Jerusalem. Then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks come in, and Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of Antichrist, tries to wipe out the Jews, slays a pig in their temple, desecrates the temple, and you have what's called the Maccabean Revolt. Again, trying to wipe the Jews out. Then the early church pops up. Before that, it was Rome that kept a heavy hand on them. Then the early church becomes anti-Semitic. The early church then becomes thoroughly anti-Semitic under Augustine. And the Roman Catholic Church became replacement theology and anti-Semitic. During the Crusades, they killed many, many Jews, thousands of Jews. And then after that, the Protestants, Martin Luther and Calvin, completely anti-Semitic, hated the Jews. You can see it in their writings. Just type in anti-Semitism on Martin Luther or Calvin. It'll pop up in a Google search, and there it is. You can see their statements of what they thought about the Jews. They hated them. And that mindset continues today, not only in our culture, but in, even in the church with replacement theology. Very few churches will even talk about the Jews. Very few churches are even pro-Semitic. Many of them are just simply not even talking about it, or even as far as being anti-Semitic. It's hard to imagine. And then in our own time, we saw the programs of Russia. Then we saw the Nazi Holocaust. And they say, we'll never forget We'll never forget. Let me show you some pictures of the Holocaust and understand 
that what you're seeing is simply a long trail of satanic oppression on Israel. Look at this. The mocking of the Jews by the German Nazis, putting them in concentration camps, starving them to death. There's the children that were all, there were, I think, nearly a million children killed in the Holocaust. If you go to Yad Vashem in Israel, you'll see all the million points of light there in Yad Vashem. They killed them. They starved them out, used them for slaves, separated the women and the men. There's the concentration camps. Most people going through our public school systems don't even know the Holocaust even happened. Very few teachers even teach on it anymore. It's still part of the curriculum, but you ask the average kid going to a public school. I'm not talking about bigger school. I'm talking about nationwide, by the way. It's not even taught in some of these districts. Only certain states require it. I think California still requires teaching the Holocaust, but in certain states, it's not even required. So you talk to a kid in a public school, hey, what about, do you know what Auschwitz is? Do you know what Krakow is? They have no clue. And especially in the college and universities, it's totally non-existent. In fact, it's anti-Israel. This is what they did to the Jews. Get a good picture of it. Because it's been going on ever since God made a promise to Abraham. Satan went after them. That's where the fight's at. Kill them. Destroy them. Do everything you can. Because the Messiah that's going to crush my head is coming from them. The Messiah that's going to reign from David's throne is coming for, for them, to rescue them. That's where the battleground's at. I have a video I want to play this video. We're coming up to the 70th year since Israel came back in the land and became a nation. This year, we're going to celebrate 70 years. They don't ever forget this. They don't ever forget their past of what, what has happened to them. And in Israel, in the day to, to remember the Holocaust, the whole nation stands still. They blow a horn, and the whole nation comes to a still saying we will never forget. I want you to see what happens in Israel every year to remember the Holocaust. The whole, the whole country stops. And they keep saying, may it never happen again. But unfortunately, I see in Scripture, Satan is not done. It will happen again. And unfortunately, right now, you have to understand where the battleground is being played right now in our country. It's not about politics. It's how our politics treat the Jews how our president treats the Jews. Right now, our president is treating the Jews very favorably. And guess what kind of backlash he's getting for it? You see what's happening? Anytime you do anything favorably for the Jews, Satan will use these people to attack that. By the way, let me give you some stats of how anti-Semitic things are getting. Europe is thoroughly gone as far as anti-Semitism. The Jews are getting out of, of Europe because the influx of Muslims has made that place unlivable because of the anti-Semitism in Europe. In America, it's happening more than you think. 57% increase in anti-Semitism in the United States between 2016 and 2017, according to the Anti-Defamation League. It's the highest year since they started recording anti-Semitism in America. It was last year. It was the highest year. 
I thought we were getting so tolerant because of the leftists and so diverse and multiculturalism that we're, we're, everyone's tolerant. No, no, anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's the highest it's ever been in the United States. The highest. In colleges, you can't even send your kid to a college without anti-Semitism. That's where the main problem is, is in the colleges and universities. The professors, the leftist professors, they have this boycott, divestment, sanctions, the BDS movement against Israel which is similar to what Adolf Hitler did in 1933 to the Jews. He said he'd paint a star on their doors and windows and don't do business with them. Don't buy from the Jews. That's what the BDS movement is about. Don't buy from the Jews anymore. And yet we have Christians, we have colleges, we have all kinds of political things, entertainment industry that has participated in this BDS movement. Unbelievable. The anti-Semitic incidences on America top colleges from 2014 to 2015, all-time high, with the intimidation of Jewish students, vandalism of synagogues, vandalism of Jewish cemeteries. Not in the Middle East. That's here in America. But we never hear anything about that. And by the way, the churches and the pastors are becoming more like this. The apostate church is anti-Semitic. I hate to tell you that, but it is. So we have a problem on our hands. And here's what I want you to see. The churches are spinning their wheels, fighting the wrong battles. They don't even know where the battle is. The battle is attacking the Jews, and they don't even realize that. They're running to the rescue of illegal immigration, racial reconciliation, digging water wells, building homes. You're fighting the wrong battle. He, Satan has got you on the wrong field. And he loves for you to think the battle's over there because the battle's here. It's Israel. Number one, we'll get to the church in just a bit. But notice who's been after Israel. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great and fiery red dragon. Take a guess who that is. Great emphasizes the magnitude at which he's coming after Israel. Fiery means he's bloodthirsty. He wants their blood. He wants every Jew on the planet dead. And he's the dragon, which represents ferociousness. He's cruel. Dragon is, is, is our modern way of saying di- our, our modern way is dinosaur, but they use the word dragon. It could be translated in the Hebrew, monster. Monster. He is this monster, this fiery red dragon that wants to destroy. And notice, it's put into the future. A fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Well, that's future. What is that talking about? Let's show you a picture. This is what Daniel saw, the final form of the Roman Empire. It's also what John the Revelator saw in Revelation 13. When Daniel predicted in Daniel 7 the four Gentile empires that would be over Israel, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece under Alexander the Great, and then his four generals, and then Rome, he predicted that Rome would exist not only during the first coming, but also the second coming. Rome is still with us, and I've told you this before. The West, it, we're in the leg part of Daniel's metallic man. And so this beast is the final form of the Antichrist's empire. 
You have seven heads and ten diadems. What Daniel predicted is that the entire globe would come under a one-world government, which is fastly doing this right now. Believe it or not, Trump is resisting this, and I don't know if he even knows it, but he's resisting. That's why they hate him so much. That's why the globalists like George Soros and the Clintons, they hate him for this. And every globalist hate him because this is what they want to go to. So this is what Daniel predicted. And he said the the world would go into a one-world government and then go into a 10-league confederation, uh, globalism. So the the world would be controlled in 10 locations. And this is already what they're thinking. This is how they want to map it out. So what happens is Antichrist comes to the scene and he takes three of these regions under his control and the rest bow a knee to him. That's why when you go back to the beast image, there's seven heads but ten horns because the Roman Empire is now under the control of the Antichrist. He's controlling three of the ten regions and seven are bowing a knee to him. That's what this means. The seven heads are the, are the regions and the ten kings that he's arrested control over and submit to him. The beast then is the final Roman Antichrist government that will control the entire world. So what John does is he tells you it's Satan who's controlling this through the Antichrist, and he's the one after, the, after Israel. Okay, so go back to the text. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So in that text, what I want you to see about this is that there's two aspects to this. This is the only passage in the entire Bible that talks about how many angels fell with Satan. It doesn't give you how, as far as, it gives you a percentage, a third. It doesn't tell you how many, so it's innumerable. We don't know how many angels God created, but a third of the angels went in Satan's rebellion. They actually believed him as he trafficked one-to-one and, 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 and blasphemed God in heaven. He convinced a third to follow him in his rebellion. With that being the case, notice the second part of this verse said, and he threw them to the earth. The earth is not the abode of the satanic or the demonic. Their abode is the atmospheric abode, space, we would call it. That's their abode. They do have access to heaven, and they do have access to earth, but their natural abode is space. Satan does have access to God. He can speak before God, and when he goes before God, he becomes the accuser of the brethren. Okay, But when he comes to earth, He does other functions. I'll get to that in just a second. What is this text saying? And he threw them to the earth. Well, it's in relation to the woman giving birth. Have you ever noticed when you look at the the Gospels versus the Old Testament, there is high demonic activity in the Gospels, like we've never seen before in the Old Testament. It's absolutely amazing. And there's a reason behind it, and it's this verse. Those one-third that fell with him, he sent them all to planet Earth. Guess when? When Messiah was about to be born. And all through Messiah's ministry, it was the most demonic activity we have ever seen in biblical history. 
They wanted to stop him. They wanted to kill him at the wrong time to make Messiah die before the appointed time of dying as a Passover lamb. And then when he's on the cross, they're taunting him to come off the cross. So imagine Jesus' perspective when he's on planet earth and Jesus being God can see the demonic realm, can he not? And the whole demonic realm is there in Israel fighting against him. It's an amazing thought. It's a view you don't really see, but you see through all the demonic activity through the Gospels. And then this verse says there was more going on than what you think. The whole demonic realm was thrown at him, trying to prevent him dying on a cross and sealing the judgment of Satan. Don't think for a moment that Satan cares about you and I at all in our our redemption. He was trying to prevent the cross to prevent his own doom. Because at the cross, more than your and I's redemption was done there, Satan's sentence was carried out on the cross. His doom was sealed, and he did not want that to happen. So there was a lot of antagonistic towards the Messiah during that period of time. You remember the, be- the babes in Bethlehem, and Herod came out and said, Look, I'm going to kill everyone under two years old. According to this verse, it wasn't Herod that had the idea. It was satanically inspired for Herod to do that. And he went after the children and tried to wipe them out. And numerous times, as you know, they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff and tried to stone him, and, and Jesus would slip through and get away. What's some application here before we move on? Again, it's understanding where the battle is. The battle right now is is going on with Israel in the Middle East and and the fact that they're a nation again. That's where a lot of the battle is. It's the battle inside the church as well, whether the church is going to be pro-Semitic or anti-Semitic. That's where the battle is. If you're in a church and they come out as anti-Semitic or just simply neutral, they don't have an opinion on it, get out of that church. Run. That pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. He's either ignorant or he is anti-Semitic. And by the way, a lot of replacement theology people are anti-Semitic. I hate to say it. That's what leads them to it. They use the words of Martin Luther in Nazi Germany to convince the churches, kill the Jews. Your, your own guy, Martin Luther, said to do it. He did it. And a lot of Christians just followed suit. And it's happening today in Christianity, and sickening to watch it. So we see now this warming up to Islam, this coddling of Islam. Let's do these interfaith dialogues and find some common ground with these Muslims. And at the same time they cuddle up to the Muslims, they're becoming anti-Semitic. It's amazing to watch this. Guys like Rick Warren, James White, and all these people having interfaith dialogues with notoriously known Islamists who are tied to terrorists, saying, oh, we're finding common ground. It's a violation of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with those kinds of people. We are not to have interfaith dialogues. And by the way, a lot of them, like Rick Warren, are cuddling up to the Catholic Church. Let me tell you about the Catholic Church. It's as anti-Semitic as they come. Where do you think that came from, the replacement theology? It came from Augustine, and that teaching permeated through the Catholic Church. 
So it doesn't shock me that these liberal Christian pastors and theologians are partnering up with Muslims and Catholics because their theological framework is anti-Semitic. Doesn't shock me at all. What about the church? Remember, there's two aspects to Satan. You have to know where the fight is. In understanding Satan, there's no doubt he goes after Israel. He, when he's in heaven and goes before God, he's the accuser of the brethren, and he's the accuser of Israel, according to Zechariah 3. He accuses you and I, and he accuses Israel. The two groups are his main problem, Israel and the church. When he comes to earth, he comes in two forms. And you have to understand this, this to understand where the, the battleground is. When he comes to earth, he comes as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, basically to kill. He's looking to kill the Jews, and he's looking to kill real Bible-believing Christians. If you're not aware, since they've been recording this, Christians being killed, legitimate Christians being killed, is at an all-time high. Notice the two fronts. I told you anti-Semitism has an all-time high, and Christian persecution is at an all-time high. Oh, really? You never hear the churches talk about persecution. They're talking about the border. They're talking about racial reconciliation. They're talking about all this social justice stuff, but they never talk about Christian persecution. They're more worried about Muslim refugees than they are Christian refugees who are getting their heads cut off by ISIS. And Islam. They don't care. Last year, 215 million Christians experienced high or very high or extreme persecution. North Korea leads the way. Behind them is all the kinds of Muslim countries in leading this persecution. Ethnic nationalism, especially in Asia, is killing Christians. Pakistan is the most dangerous country for Christians. Oh, so the battle, when he comes as a roaring line, he goes after the Jews and Bible-believing Christians. Okay, I'm catching on now. That's where the two fights are. If I don't understand where the battlefield is, I can't get in the game. Oh, there's another form he comes. If he doesn't come in the form of a raging lion, he comes in the form as an angel of light. That's the second aspect of Satan you have to understand. What do you mean? The angel of light is to deceive people, not just the world, but what are the two battles, Israel and the church? He comes as an angel of light to deceive Israel and to deceive the church. Right now, he's deceiving Israel, and the way he's deceiving them is making them think that eventually they're going to have to do a deal eventually with the Antichrist. He's working in the liberal section of Israel to do this. Thank God. There's a lot of things you can thank God for. When we see our country nominate Trump, and again, I'm, it's not a, I'm not a Trump supporter per se, but by the way, Trump getting elected and helping Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, help him get reelected, kept the liberal element out of Israel's Knesset, or getting control of the government. You don't know how vital that is. If the liberals in Israel get control and start running the country, they'll run it straight to the Antichrist. They'll run it into doing all kinds of compromises because they're liberal. A kingdom is not divided against itself. 
If the liberals are on the side of the kingdom of darkness, guess what kind of decisions they're going to make for the country? Believe it or not, we helped Bibi get reelected and stay in power, which is huge politically. Huge. You can't underestimate that. So he comes as an angel of light to deceive the Jews and the Christians. Yes. And what does the angel of light do? He gives them a counterfeit, a counterfeit to what they're doing. Instead of doing the right thing, they'll do something that seems to be right, but it has a flaw in it. It has a missing element in it. And he'll do this to the church. He'll do it to you and I. And he'll give us a counterfeit. The church is now facing a counterfeit Jesus that no one is understanding. They think that Jesus was a, was a liberator, was a revolutionary. There's another gospel being promoted in the church. It's a counterfeit gospel. It's a social justice gospel being pushed in the church. There's another spirit in the church. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's demonic manifestations happening in the church like there's never been before. And by the way, this angel of light that brings a counterfeit to deceive us, he has his apostles and he has his ministers. And they do his bidding and they do it very well. And they sell it so good because it seems like a good thing. When David Platt gets on the platform last week and says, all the pastors and the churches are causing the racial divide. What do you do with a guy like that? You're a hireling, David Platt. You're nothing but a hireling. You're a useful idiot. And I mean that in the best sense I could possibly imagine. Useful idiot is a communistic term that the communists would pe- use people and they didn't know they're being used. Matt Chandler his church takes funding from foundations funded by George Soros. Thank you very much. That's why they're into racial reconciliation. That's why you're into no borders. Bring all the Muslims into the country because, oh, someone's giving them money to their church. Gotcha. Loud and clear. It's a quid pro quo. I scratch your back, you scratch mine, you give me money, I'll promote your social justice Marxist causes. Thank you. The church is selling out, at least the apostate church, because they're deceived. The angel of light is working inside. Huh. Scary. Let's move on. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So the idea, if you remember, there's a picture of Israel and the child. The child is obviously the Messiah. And Satan wanted to kill the Messiah. And you remember with Herod and all that. And so Messiah, though, is born. Let's go back to the text real quick. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Notice in there, there's a first coming and the second coming in the text. She bore a male child, but the ruling of the nations with a rod of iron is second coming material, right? Satan knew this. This is the one predicted in Genesis chapter 3 that would crush him. So he tried to attack Messiah in many ways. And he was unsuccessful, as you recall. 
And notice the rest of the text. Let me read it. And the child was caught up to God and to his throne. There it is. The child was caught up to God and his throne. What does this imply? Well, it shows you that Messiah's work was successful. Notice in the text is that he was born, then he's caught up talking about the ascension. It's actually using the word in Greek, harpazo, which is used for the rapture. He's caught up, he's snatched away in the ascension. What's the implications here? Is that Satan was unsuccessful. Messiah did the work of the cross, he was resurrected, and the proof of it is he ascended back into heaven, that the work has been done. That's the whole point. But Satan did not kill him. So what remains? What remains then is the rod of iron rule that's coming, that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that's what Satan is trying to prevent because Satan is trying to rule the nations himself. And he doesn't want Jesus to do that. Remember the five I wills in Isaiah 14 when Satan was saying, I will, I will ascend on high, I will ascend above the stars. And one of the I wills, he says, I will sit on the mount of the congregation. You know what that's a reference to? That he wants to rule over Israel and wants to rule over the planet from Jerusalem. Do you now understand why Jerusalem is the hotbed place in the entire planet. It's the place that God said Jesus is going to rule from, and Satan is wanting to rule there. He said that in his fall. He didn't say that in history. He said that prior to this. Satan had a conception, an understanding of what the second person of the Trinity was going to do. And how he wanted to rule humanity, Satan did, and how he wanted to be that guy. Oh my goodness, this goes way back. The I wills go way beyond that. They go right after the fall of Satan. This is some serious ground that you're covering in this recounting of history. Now, the idea then is, and we're going to see this next week, what then happens to Israel? Well, the rest of the text, as we study it next week, will go into currently and in the future what Satan will try to do to the Jews. But this recounts their history. He has been unsuccessful in wiping them out. And he will be unsuccessful in the future of trying to wipe them out. But folks, understand why the battleground for Israel is extremely important. That's where the fight's happening. The fight's happening there, and it's happening in the church. Those are the two battlefronts. If you understand those two battlefronts, then everything around it makes sense. You won't get off on tangents. You won't get deceived into going after certain things that's not even on God's radar. Those are the two radar things. Church, Israel. Church, Israel. Now, we'll see more of this next week. Application. The application then for you and I is to understand if in our own personal walk we're fighting the right battles. What do you mean? Well, Christians are deceived sometimes and can be deceived 
into thinking certain things are battles, and they're not. Certain Christians who uh, believe that the kingdom is going to be ushered in by them and not Jesus are trying to do it through politics. You know what David Platt on the platform said about the solution to racial problems? I think it's a faux problem, but what did you guess what he said the solution was? Bigger government. Thank you very much. That's the talking points of a Marxist. That's a pastor saying that. See, he thinks the fight is politics. I can tell you right now, and you already know it. There's no politician in, in, in Washington worth his salt. It's a swamp. They're not going to change anything. It's going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. California's going to get worse. They're not going to get better. The problem is not politics. The problem is not injustice. The churches are involved in all this social justice stuff. Jesus said this about the poor. What did he say? The poor you will always have with you. You're not going to alleviate poverty. In fact, most people who are poor are immoral. I hate to tell you that. If, you, if study after study shows, especially in America, the poor in America, it's not because they're downtrodden or don't have the skill set. They simply don't want to work because of the government handouts. Again, that's not all of them. There's obviously people that are legitimate, but the majority of the people are on governmental assistance because they're lazy. End of story. And there's books on just not even a Christian, but on secular that report this. It's because of the immorality of the family. Oh, you can't say that. That's racist. It's racist to say it's the immorality of the family? Come on. Fighting the wrong fight. But let's get serious. A lot of people think, well, it's my spouse that's the problem. God, I just pray that you would change my spouse and everything would be great in my home if my spouse would just change their attitude. Wrong fight. Wrong battle. Not the right ground. If you think that it's the problem of your spouse, Satan has deceived you. Now, I'll give you that. 20% of the problem might be them, but 80% is how you're responding to that spouse. Or even just bad relationships. They can't get their act together, Brandon. Well, how about you getting your act together? Let's get your stuff solved first before we try to remove the speck in their eye. It's the church, Brandon. It's the church. It's the pastor. I can't stand him. He's a punk. I don't like him. I got to find another church. And they go from church to church to church to church. And guess what's happening? It's not the church's fault. It's they're the problem. Well, it's my kids, Brandon. His kids are out of control, and I just can't get a grip on them. And they're just—I I, I got a bunch of canes on my hand, and and there's no Abels in the in the mix. And you want to say no? It's your parenting skills. That's what's happening. It's not the kids. You shouldn't be surprised by the results you're getting with your kids. It's you. You're the problem. Your parenting skills are lacking. You're the deficient one, not the kids. But see, what, why does Satan do that? He doesn't want you to fix it. He wants you to think they're the problem, and if they're the problem, you don't have anything to fix. You see how he plays the game, even on a personal level? We're see, we saw it from a geopolitical level, but now we see it on a personal level. Oh, it, it's my spouse. No, no, no. Satan is hiding something from you. He's keeping you in the dark. He's keeping you blind to your own issues, and we're staying willfully blind through it. 
That's how the game is played. He makes you fight battles that are not the battle. And so in essence, when I tell people in counseling, a lot of times is your problem is not your problem. Your problem is not your problem. It's something else and something deeper. And it's not external to you. It's internal to you. If you would just respond correctly, 80% of this would be better. I talked to a guy a while back. He'd been through a number of marriages and a number of relationships. Numerous, by the way. And he said, Brandon, I just can't figure it out. He just said, all women must be just like this. Controlling, nagging. And he just just broad-brushed all of womanhood, okay? And he says, I I just don't get it. Every woman I get is is a a controller, is, is, uh, you know, codependent, all this other stuff. He goes, I've been through five relationships so far. I've been married three different times, and every woman I get is the same way. All women must be like this. See, that's what's going on in his mind. In his mind, Satan put it in his head that all women are like this. And you know what I said to him? I said, well, describe every woman that you've had. And, I mean, seriously, every woman was the same. He could describe it. And I said, do you realize what's happened? You have married the same kind of woman and got into relationships with the same kind of woman over and over and over again. Do you think the problem is not with women, that the problem really is you? There's a reason why you keep picking the same type of women. And he looked at me like a calf at a new gate. You ever seen that? They just don't, well, what? What? That was the first time I've ever told somebody, it's you, dude. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you've, you've adequately described every, every, all these relationships, the problem with you. And he goes, what do you mean? And Satan had kept this hidden from him. I said, you have a mommy problem. And he looked at me and like, mommy problem? What are you talking about? Tell me, I go, just tell me your past with your mom. It was horrible. He didn't have a mom. Okay? He just didn't have a mom. I said, do you know what's happening to you? You're on search for your mom. And the women you're picking, they fit that because they seem motherly, but really they're not motherly. They're over-controllers. They nag like a mom does. Pick up your clothes. Pick up your socks. And you look like that. You're looking for that like a little boy is looking for his mom. And that's why you keep getting women who are over controllers, women that do that mother you are really not. They're simply codependents. You're attracted to codependents. Do you realize that? He says, "No, I, I had no idea." I said, "Because." You don't know where the fight is. You think it's just women. It's not. It's you looking for your mom. That's your problem. And, if, and until you solve this problem of looking for your mommy to take care of your irresponsibility, you will continue to find the same type of woman. 
and then you will break up with them, and then you will find a new one, and then you will break up with them, and this cycle will keep going until you take responsibility and fix yourself. And he looked at me like a calf in a new gate, and he goes, why did it take to be 65 to figure this out? And I said, I know. Let me tell you what's been going on. Satan is an angel of light who says lies to you and you believed him. And you have been functioning like this for 65 years since you were a little boy on the hunt for your mom. I said, here's the deal. Better late than never. Fix this now. And he says, okay. So we started working. And, and, and it's going well. The point On a geopolitical level, it's Israel and the church. On a personal level, it's the things hidden internally that Satan is using against you. It's not the external. It's the internal. It's the heart. Fix the heart. Fix the internal. And it fixes the external. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.